The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold, Behold. the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Season 3, Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People, Apprentices. Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People. Mod Log 20. Preparing for Death. Five days until all hell breaks loose. All of us in our cool rebel coveralls, we sat in a straight line as Jim Henson handed out NARS slates. Aren't these bad? Emma asked. Yeah, Connor piped in. Isn't this how they're going to take over the world and stuff? These particular devices, Jim answered gently, have been drastically altered. They can't access NARS or the World Wide Web. Great, said Barrett, handling the sleek, flat tablet like it was a turd. So what do they do? They can communicate with one another, Jim said, and they can send and receive data from the rebel uplink. They're just fancy walkie-talkies? I asked. More than that, but not less, said David Bowie, who was leaning against the wall with his arms crossed. I say I had gathered the seven of us at an hour that felt very early, though none of us had any sense of time on Gaina. After we'd showered and changed our underwear, we were herded into a mess hall of some kind where Power Surf served us trays of what looked like boiled kale and pineapple. Zero times, Becky said immediately. No alien salad for me, thanks. It's perfectly edible, Power Surf assured us. We've had people here long enough to figure out which Gyenian crops agree with the human stomach. There's only so much pizza we can transport to another planet. Gyenian? Becky pronounced slowly. Barrett scowled at her. What? She asked defensively. I'm making sure I say things correctly. Jeez. And what Gyenian crops are these exactly? Paul asked. 
because it looks like booty. Boff me out, Jade groaned. It looks like seaweed and lemons. Barrett was already chewing. It's not bad, he said plainly. I skewered a green leaf with my fork, expecting it to hang limp when I lifted it from my plate. Instead, it held its rigid shape like a stiffened collard green. Folding the vegetable over my tongue cautiously, a strong sweet taste like honey flooded my mouth. The leaf crunched between my teeth, a pleasant-tasting viscous liquid erupting from it as I chewed. The green stuff tastes like a piece of freshen-up, I said. Paul looked down the table at me skeptically. That gum with the liquid center? I nodded, still chewing loudly. Paul shrugged, took a bite, chewed thoughtfully for a moment, then nodded to himself and went on eating. Before long, everyone had eaten most of the green yarek, but not quite as much of the yellow para, which sort of tasted like a mix between grapefruit and beets. Only Barrett ate all of it, though he admitted the yellow stuff was kind of weird. Gyenian water was also surprisingly sweet, but not dissimilar to earth water. Even Becky, who had refused to eat that weird kale stuff, celebrated the alien H2O, saying it sort of reminded her of Tab Clear without the bubbles. Eventually, I say a return to the mess hall with David Bowie and Jim Henson, the latter opening a black case and retrieving our new NARS slates one by one from inside. You can talk to one another with the slate, Bowie explained, stepping forward, and you can relay useful information, maps, coordinates, codes, even photos and videos. With this, Becky asked, lifting the small device in disbelief. Indeed, Bowie nodded. If these things are doomsday devices, Jade asked, what are you guys doing with them? These slates were stolen from the facility in Vancouver, Isaiah told us. They were sent through the inorganic transport, quickly cleared of all Shyad software, and reprogrammed for our purposes. Who stole them? I asked. Isaiah looked at me as though this were a stupid question. Badass lizard, Connor said, nodding. He and Isaiah exchanged a high five. And you totally broke them open and did Mondo modifications? I asked, suddenly very excited to identify with Isaiah in this way. No, he said immediately, deflating my excitement. So who knows how to reprogram these things then? Emma wondered. Guilty, said Power Surf, raising a hand. It took some figuring out, but there it is. We'll teach you to use the slates, Jim Henson informed us in his gentle way. Together with the Moak implants, you'll have an excellent chance at completing the mission. A chance? Becky echoed. But it isn't up to technology in the end, is it? David Bowie asked. It's up to you five blokes, you two ladies, and one fantastically reckless young lizard. Isaiah smiled. Not even he was immune to the amazing gratification of being affirmed by David Bowie. David is right, of course, Jim continued. We're doing everything we can to send you into this fight prepared, but to succeed, you'll have to rely on your wits, your training, and most of all, each other. It was quiet for a moment, then Connor looked down the line of chairs at us and cautiously raised his hand like a student before a teacher. Yes, Mr. Froud? Jim asked. Connor let his hand slip slowly down, then asked, Why us? You responded to the historian, Isaiah said. You were all willing to fight together. Well, great, Barrett laughed. So we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
David Bowie and Jim Henson looked at one another for a moment before Bowie smiled and answered, You were all in the right place at the right time. I was beginning to like Stephen K. Hayes less and less. Remind me how this makes me more ninja or whatever, Becky yelled, perched on the half-pipes coping. Her red hair was sticking to her glistening forehead, her helmet a size too big. Every student of the Bujinkan tradition must learn what it means to truly sense the intention around them, Hayes called out over the din of loud music from the other end of the half-pipe. Barrett stood next to Hayes, also sweating the wooden staff gripped in both hands. You know this, Hayes reminded her, tapping the spot behind his ear where a Moak implant would rest. The same sensation you experience when you walk into a room that has just known hostility and you sense that something isn't right. It's more than picking up on body language or mannerisms. It's the ability to sense the intention of one who means to do you harm. And why do we have to do it on a skateboard thing? Becky asked, unconvinced. And why with big sticks? She brandished the staff as if Hayes might have forgotten. Almost every human being has the ability to sense the intentionality of others, Hayes explained, an untapped ability clouded by emotion and distraction. But the ninja knows self-mastery. And anyway, you have a helmet. Let's go. Becky shook her head, readying herself to drop in, exhaling deeply through puckered lips. Stupid legendary ninja guy, she mumbled to herself before leaning over and moving swiftly down the ramp's vertical drop. Barrett watched Becky transition from either end of the ramp for several passes, smiling at her as she went. What are you doing? Becky shouted. Stop being an ass, Barrett. Still smiling, Barrett shrugged and dropped in. The rest of us watched as the two of them moved impressively along the halfpipe passing each other at near-perfect intersecting intervals. Riding this thing is hard enough, Becky protested. Are we going to do this or what? That's what she said, Barrett chuckled. Who? Connor asked. I can't freaking believe Becky is riding this halfpipe, 
said Paul, clearly astonished. She's better than I was. Was is right, my friend, Power Surf agreed, pointing at Paul's mohawk. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Connor asked. What? I asked. I mean, look at this, he said, moving his hand across the scene unfolding on the halfpipe. Do you know how many times I wiped out learning to drop in? Mondo head injuries, I said, opening a can of tab and taking a sip. Mondo, Connor said. Look at Becky. She drops in vert her first try. What do you expect, dude? She's got that bubblicious thing telling her brain to tell her body how to move and balance and all that. Connor turned to Power Surf. How did you program these things for skateboarding anyway? I'd spent a lot of time tracking movements and patterns for a video game I've been writing, Power Surf answered. I think I'm going to add this to the game, he added, pointing to Becky and Barrett. What, just two dorks riding a halfpipe at the same time? With big-ass sticks, Power Surf nodded, like a joust, man. Wicked, said Connor. As Becky and Barrett prepared to pass one another, Becky readied her staff. Anticipating the strike with ease, Barrett ducked beneath her swing and passed without incident. Just fall, Becky scolded him. Are you honestly going to hit me with that thing? We're going to be up against something more intense than a skateboarding joust, Becky, Barrett insisted, laughing as he passed. It's no good taking the exercise lightly. As Barrett rounded the coping and descended the vert, Becky did likewise from the opposite end. The song changed, setting a sinister tone. As soon as she had turned, Becky loosed her staff like a spear, which soared with perfect accuracy into Barrett's helmet just above his forehead. Though his skateboard continued to travel, Barrett himself was forced backward where he was flattened on the ramp's vertical surface before drifting down slowly like a bug splattered on a windshield. The rest of us went nuts. Becky reached the coping, accomplished what looked like an effortless dismount, removed her helmet, and gave Stephen Hayes a high five. In retrospect, the high five seemed a bit like gloating, but we were all so caught up in the moment that we hardly noticed. Let's all just settle down, Barrett said, recovering as gracefully as possible. Can we all just acknowledge that Becky didn't play by the rules here? What rules? Hayes asked. You were asked to free yourself from the distraction of the noise, the music, your peers, even the effort necessary to navigate the halfpipe, and to sense the intention of your opponent. In this case, your opponent's intention was amplified to a degree that sensing it should have been an unusually accommodating feat. Instead, you allowed yourself to become completely obscured by distraction. Sure, yeah, Barrett agreed. Or maybe I was so tuned in that I knew what was coming and chose to sacrifice myself to avoid having to strike a girl. Oh, please, Becky groaned, rolling her eyes. Righteous nonviolence, Connor called out, raising a single fist.
The seven of us seated around a large circular table in the pizzeria, Connor was already complaining about Emma's mixtape. I mean, seriously, Emma, were you preparing the soundtrack for our funerals? I think it's pretty appropriate, Emma said, wrapping her lips around a flex straw, hoping for the best but expecting the worst. Bad omen, said Paul, lifting his third slice from a tray at the table's center. Besides, Emma went on after a long sip, isn't that sort of what we're doing out here? Providing a soundtrack for our funerals? I asked. Sort of, she shrugged. Preparing for death. Well, bummer, said Barrett. Not the inevitability of death, Emma clarified, but the possibility of it. Isn't it more real now than it's ever been for us? She looked at me thoughtfully. For some of us, anyway, I guess. I don't need to be on another planet to remember that I'm going to die, Connor said, staring off into the recreation center that PowerSurf had designed for us. He sounded calm, almost casual, but not unserious. It's coming for us, either way. Everyone seemed to consider this for a moment. It's a drag, Paul pointed out, knowing death has the final word. No way, Connor countered happily. Death is an intruder in the goodness of the created order, my friend. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Is that another Jesus thing? Paul asked. I'm afraid so, said Connor, slapping him on the back. I've got to tell you guys, between Jesus of Nazareth and Stephen K. Hayes, I'm not sure how much more self-mastery I can handle. With the entire group back in the mess hall, we sat in another goofy row before Power Surf, Isaiah, Jim Henson, and David Bowie. On the table in front of us were our NARS slates, only, you know, without the NARS. Power Surf guided us through the functionality of the slate, which, despite being a weapon of mass destruction, was also pretty damn cool. The little five-ounce machine was about six inches tall and three inches wide, and only a few millimeters thick. Despite its insignificant size, 
It was somehow equipped with a processor infinitely superior to my Atari ST computer and that made my Nintendo seem like a game of Pong designed by Neanderthals. With no keyboard or joystick, the device was operated by touching the screen, which made up the entire surface of whichever side was facing up. Responsive in ways that boggled our minds, images on the display could be clicked by a fingertip, dragged or resized by pinching, even projected as three-dimensional holograms by flicking the slab like you were tossing the image into the air. With the connection to both NARS and the World Wide Web severed, the devices existed in a sort of shared virtual space in which data on every slate was readily accessible at any given moment by all seven of us. We could talk to one another, sort of like walkie-talkies, type short messages that were delivered in an instant, even send photos and videos taken by a camera built into the slate itself. Sweet Jesus, I gasped. No wonder this thing is going to enslave the human race. This is the first version, PowerSurf told us. The Shyad plans to release a new model annually, each with significant technological upgrades. What? Becky asked in disbelief. How do you upgrade from this? Remember the plot, Isaiah said. Enslave the lesser life forms. Absorb them into APEP. Take what they do not deserve away from them. The Slate tutorials were boring. The Moak implants had made us all feel as though we knew everything there was to know about using the machines, but our teachers insisted that we go through the motions to ensure there were no gaps in our understanding of these incredible little tablets. Pay attention, Isaiah shouted, noticing that I'd been daydreaming. I'm listening, dude, I lied. I doubted anyone was really listening anyway. Wind. Stephen K. Hayes kept going on about wind. I'm so close, she can't catch me, he said, inviting Emma to attack him. Emma rushed in, lifting a leg, ready to drive her foot into Hayes' sternum. In one seamless, fluid moment, Hayes darted to the left of Emma's foot, crouching so that his knee moved beneath Emma's extended leg, compromising her balance. She stumbled backward on the trap he'd set, and as she did, he caught her in his arms, using, using the, momentum the momentum of her fall to turn her around and bring her down, trapped in a painful-looking grip. It all seems like a lot of work, Emma said, wincing. Barrett rushed in with another kick, apparently committed to having someone land an effective blow this way. Again, Hayes moved efficiently away from the kick, then lifted his own foot, using it to guide the momentum of Barrett's leg further than Barrett had intended compromising his balance until Barrett was splayed out in a sort of involuntary split. I was thinking, now's my chance. 
I came at Hayes with what had become a very effective punch over the last few days. Somehow, Hayes seized my wrist and locked my attacking arm between his folded elbow and his ribs, twisting me in a painful hold. Before I could utilize my free arm, Hayes rotated on his feet, wrenching my stolen arm until I collapsed. Now recovering from his forced split, Barrett returned to his feet and attempted to use his significant height and reach to get a hold of Hayes' shoulder, rearing back for a debilitating punch. Hayes moved away from the danger zone as the punch launched forward. Pivoting around Barrett's clenched fists until he was parallel with Barrett's extended arm, Hayes then drove a vicious-looking blow into Barrett's ribs, and Barrett's grip loosened on Hayes' shoulder as Barrett crumbled to the padded floor. Both of us breathing heavily, lying on our backs, I said to Barrett, You're really bad at this. You totally suck at it, he rebutted. Get up, both of you, Hayes instructed us. I'm afraid we no longer have time for slowed-down techniques and concern for personal safety. So we can really go for it now? Barrett asked as he stood. Hayes laughed. We're beyond the point of basic demonstrations. Everyone select a weapon. Beside the arcade cabinet, I lifted the NAR slate to my ear and whispered, I'm hiding beside Outrun. Becky's voice answered, I can hardly hear you because of these stupid masks and Connor's awful racket. We endure your mixtape, Becky. You can handle his for the duration of this exercise, I tell her. And these masks are awesome. Oh, you poor babies, Becky says. I can almost hear her crossing her eyes. Do you see them or not? I see them. To visualize the exercise, you need to understand the layout of the rec room. The arcade cabinets are mostly relegated to the left side of the floor plan in an intentionally complicated maze-like format. At first, I thought Power Surf was just impractical. Hey, I told Becky, interrupting myself. Do you think Power Surf arranged the games in a maze on purpose for the sake of these practice missions? Becky was quiet for a moment, then said, are you serious? That's only just occurring to you? Yeah, I admitted, suddenly embarrassed. I had a sort of internal monologue going on over here. The arcade maze was a chaotic environment. The entire area was dimly lit, mostly illuminated by low-watt neon bulbs and the flicker from dozens of screens. Becky was right. Hearing was a challenge. Connor's tape was blaring over the rec room's PA, and the tangled cacophony of the mini-games added another layer of beeps, boops, and monophonic video game melody. All this is distracting enough without the lingering fog perpetually pumped into the arcade, suspended over the ground like dry ice vapor. 
Though Hayes insisted that the Shinobi Shizoku, that totally awesome black outfit and mask you always see ninjas wear in movies, was unnecessary and not entirely historically accurate, we'd convinced him they were necessary for our success. Ever the party poopers, Emma, Becky, and Barrett had opted to go in their coveralls and some protective gear with no ninja outfits at all. Hayes seemed determined to reframe our ninja fanboy paradigms. Many ninja may not have even thought of themselves as ninja, he told us earlier. They called themselves Iga no Mano, which means men of Iga, or they called themselves Rapa, which means grassroots. DIY, Connor nodded. Punk rock. All this was replaying in my head as I breathed into my black mask, crouched beside the arcade games. Do you see them, Danny? Becky repeated. I see Barrett and Paul, I whispered. What about the hostage? For God's sake, Becky, it's not a hostage. It's a stuffed Alf doll. We're supposed to take this seriously, Danny. Looking at this Alf doll isn't helping. It helps me, said Becky. I want to save Alf. A third voice suddenly came from my NARS slate. I don't know why I have to hide in the pizzeria, Emma complained. There's no one here. It's boring. Just cover your post, I insisted. Remember what Hayes said. Deception is a powerful tool at the ninja's disposal. Yeah, sort of, Emma conceded. But wasn't he going on about appearing to be what people expect to see? Then you become invisible, right? So become a pizza, I said, leaning out from behind the arcade game and observing Paul and Barrett in the distance. Get bent, said Emma. What do they have? Becky asked. Paul has a pair of psi, I told her, like Raphael from that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic book. Which one is Raphael? Emma asked. The one with the psi, I answered. How the hell else can you tell them apart? It's just a comic book and they all look identical. They should, like, make them different colors or something, Jade's voice said. I spun around to find that he'd joined me crouching behind the outrun cabinet. That would look so stupid, I told him. It must be just exhausting to keep finding new ways to identify each of them in that comic book, he continued. How would different colors help? The comic is black and white. Well, if they ever did it in color, Jade said, or made a cartoon of it or something. Yeah, I snorted. A cartoon where swearing mutant turtles kill ninjas with swords sounds perfect for Saturday morning. Who are you talking to? Becky asked over the slate. Jade is here. Why didn't he stay at his post by the skate park? Emma asked, clearly frustrated. Overhearing her, Jade answered. It was so boring, nothing was happening over there. That's it, Emma said. I'm leaving. No, I hissed into the slate. Everyone stay put. We need to listen to Hayes. Didn't you say they're right there? Becky asked. There's two of you. Just go get the hostage. But where's Connor? I asked. And where is Isaiah? This seems too easy. They're not going to just form a circle around the hostage and stand there. Jade scoffed. I bet the, I nub- bet the other two are out looking for us. Hayes said to split up. Remember? Yes, I remember. I barked at him which is why I told you to stay at the skate park, numbnuts. Just get the hostage, Becky told us. All I've got are a bunch of shuriken, Jade lamented, revealing a handful of sharp, dart-like implements. Denny has a katana. 
It's not a katana, I said defensively. The shinobi gatana is basically a straight slab of heavy steel with a single ground edge, and it's for more than just fighting, it's a useful tool. Jade stared back at me blankly. Barrett has a staff, I added. Do you want me to come rescue Alf? Becky asked. No, 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 I answered immediately. I'll get the stupid doll, damn it. Whoa, said Emma. Who changed the music? I found the tape deck, said Becky. This does not bode well, I whispered. My sword sheathed and strapped to my back. I crawled between the walls of arcade games, through the cover of fog toward Paul and Barrett. With a quick move of my knee, I was able to rob Paul of his balance by striking the back of his leg and seized him in a hold. Rather than defend his teammate, Barrett took Alf in his arms and leaped to the nearest arcade control panel, then to the top of the machines. Dodging the sudden onslaught of Jade's shuriken, Barrett gripped his staff and called down from his perch. One shuriken shattered a double dragon screen, releasing a shower of bright sparks. Kiwis have horrible aim, I yelled. How dare you! Jade shouted back. I'd moved past the momentarily indisposed Paul, attempting to somehow sneak behind Barrett without his noticing. It all sounds exhilarating, came Emma's voice emanating from the slate fastened to my hip. I bet you wish I weren't sitting here in the pizzeria twiddling my thumbs. You're not actually twiddling your thumbs, are you? Becky asked. I'm trying, said Emma. It's sort of hard. You guys are seriously killing me, I whispered. What? Becky asked loudly. I can barely hear you over flash dance. Before I could say anything further, I was leveled by a sharp blow to my back and suddenly caught in Barrett's grip. I had the high ground, dude, Barrett reminded me. Taunting me, he brandished the Alf doll, squeezing it to activate one of its pre-recorded phrases. How about a hug for the old Alfer? the doll said. You're going to break my arm, dude, I admitted. That sort of thing won't work on the hostile aliens, Barrett told me, refusing to loosen his grip. Just as these words were leaving his mouth, something shot out of the dark haze of the arcade and struck Barrett's hand with an awful thud. What the hell? he screamed. For Alf! Becky shouted, stepping out of the fog, wielding something called a kusarigama. The weapon was made up of a small handheld sickle with a significant length of chain attached to the handle. The chain itself ended with a small iron weight, which had been used to loosen Barrett's grip on the doll. Becky retrieved the chain with a quick flick of the wrist, wrapping it around her arm and spinning the weight like a lasso. Barrett's hold broken, I snatched Alf from the ground and made off down the maze of video games with Becky running after me. I can't fight aliens with a broken hand, Barrett shouted behind us. You'll be fine, Becky assured him without turning around. We'd almost reached the end of the arcade maze when Isaiah appeared before us. Wearing a kind of shinobi shizoku himself, only tailored to fit his lizard-like frame, Isaiah looked horrifying standing there with an exposed shinobi katana of his own. Ah, damn it, I said, after coming to an abrupt stop, Becky slamming into my back. You have a sword too, she reminded me, urging me forward. Yeah, but he's way bigger than I am, I argued, and he looks way scarier. You have the cool mask, she patronized. Hayes was right, I confessed. The mask is worthless. 
Forcing the apprehension away, I rushed forward, relying on the painful trials I'd endured at the hands of Master Hayes over the last few days and the years of rigorous training wired directly into my brain by a miraculous piece of bubblegum. For the ninja, wielding a sword isn't like fencing. The sword itself becomes an extension of the warrior's body. With my blade raised over my head and Isaiah's lowered before him, I brought the sword down, threatening a blow that could effectively end our little skirmish before it began. As my sword descended, Isaiah's rose with a movement that not only deflected, but also used the momentum of my swing to spin my sword away from me with a big circular movement. Isaiah brought his blade down over me, stopping just short of my neck. Never his mind on where he was, Isaiah grinned. Yoda, I said, his blade still at my neck. Dude, this is nothing like Empire. A sore loser you are. Isaiah reached for the Alf doll but nearly dropped his sword when the iron weight of Becky's Kusarigama struck the blade with a loud clang. Seriously, Becky? I yell into the fog of the arcade games. My face is right here. You forget, she says, that I am a master of the mini scythe whipping ball and chain. It's called a Kusarigama. I shouted, leaping out of the way just before Becky began to spin the weapon's chain in a circle, creating a protective field around her. Isaiah moved just beyond the chain's reach, looking for an opening. Before he could find one, Becky's chain lunged forward, wrapping itself around the blade of Isaiah's sword, like Indiana Jones's whip. Becky yanked her weapon backward, and Isaiah's blade was stripped from him. And I am a master of the sword stick, Emma's voice declared as she appeared behind Isaiah. Gripped in both hands was something called a naginata, a long wooden pole ending in a deadly curved blade. You know, I say aside, spinning it around like that serves no practical purpose at all. I beg to differ, Emma said, clearly showing off like a gymnast with a baton. It looks totally radical. From Isaiah's grip, the Alf doll announced, Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Who is watching the California Raisin? I shouted. He's fine, Emma assured us. I hid him. Are you kidding me with this soundtrack? Isaiah complained. Did you plan this? No, actually, Becky claimed, but it's working out pretty nicely. Above us, two shapes moved swiftly across the tops of the arcade games. Don't give them Alf, Barrett shouted down to Isaiah. We're going to get the raisin, Paul added. Fantastic. I groaned, eyeing the furry brown alien in Isaiah's clutches. Becky, use your chain. Get the hostage. I don't want to hurt Alf, she said, looking serious. It's not the real Alf, Emma assured her. The real Alf is a fucking puppet, I screamed. Well, sheesh, Mr. Swearwords, said Becky. If Alf is supposed to be a hostage, I can't exactly throw a dangerous weapon at him. You're a master of that thing, remember? Oh my God, you're right, Becky said, her eyes wide. She turned to face Isaiah, spun the weighted chain around a single time, then loosed it before her where the iron weight struck Isaiah in the chest, causing him to stumble backward, dropping Alf. I drove forward in time to catch the little doll, which landed perfectly in my open hands and declared, No problem! Protect the raisin! I screamed. Everyone, protect the raisin! I see them! I heard Jade say through the slate as I ran toward the pizzeria in time to catch Barrett crawling beneath the tables in search of our hostage.
Not far from him, Paul was making his way behind the counter, toward the kitchen, when a quick burst of shuriken whizzed by his face, making him leap backward. Good grief, Paul protested. Are you serious, Jade? You're a ninja master now. You can't aim shuriken at my face. You're a ninja master too, Jade called out from his nearby perch. You can dodge them. Paul seemed to consider this for a moment, then jutted his chin and nodded proudly as if this was a pleasant bit of news. We don't know what to defend, Emma, I said. Where did you hide the raisin? Emma appeared beside me, looking outrageously sexy in her complimenting uniform and wielding what could only be described as a very cool weapon. Her forehead beaded with sweat. She shrugged and said, They're not even close. How do we end the exercise? Jade asked urgently. We deliver Alf to Hayes, I said. Becky, Jade, Emma, and I stared at one another for a moment, then looked down at the furry doll in my hand before we took off toward the half-pipe. Where is Isaiah? Paul screamed as we went. As if on cue, Isaiah suddenly appeared from the fog of the arcade, his short sword gripped in both hands. All of us looked to Becky, who nodded, urging everyone to step back. Becky again began to swing the weighted chain in a wide circle over her head, creating a defensive perimeter. Isaiah moved cautiously outside the chain's wide swing with his sword lifted overhead. Becky repeated her previously effective attack by snaring Isaiah's sword and snatching it from his grip. As the sword left his hands, Isaiah reached to his hip and suddenly drew a second sword none of us realized he'd been hiding. Half of Becky's weapon now tangled around the first sword, Isaiah rushed forward, prepared to remove Becky from the fight. As the sword moved down, Becky lifted the sickle end of her kusarigama in time to block the attack as she simultaneously veered out of the danger zone. Allowing the sword to continue its trajectory, Becky used the sickle to guide it down and away, eventually breaking its connection to her weapon, which she then raised over her head and brought down on Isaiah's neck, stopping before she'd seriously injured him. Whoa! Isaiah said, panting. That was seriously awesome. Totally, Becky agreed, also panting. I ran with Jade and Emma to the halfpipe where we found Hayes sitting in a lotus position on the ramps coping, next to the California raisin doll, which had been cutely posed the same way. Jade and I looked at Emma. I told you they weren't even close, she said. I presented Hayes with Alf. Upon being delivered, the doll happily exclaimed, I think you're out of this world. of the word virus you can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on twitter at the word virus and instagram at spread the word virus and at the word virus.com